This is Faster, a podcast by Flow Cycling. In each episode, we interview industry experts to educate you, challenge you, and even change the way you train so you become faster. When we're not creating this podcast, we're working on other ways to make you faster. At Flow, we design and manufacture some of the world's fastest cycling wheels that we sell consumer direct to keep more money in your pockets. As a special thank you for listening to Faster, we wanted to offer you 20% off your next purchase. Simply use coupon code PODCAST in all capital letters at checkout. Your purchase will also support our Give Back initiatives. 1% of all sales supports our Bike for a Kid program, where we provide bikes and helmets for kids in need. We also plant one tree for every wheel we ship as a thank you to our planet. Enjoy the show. Derek Teal, welcome to Faster. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. Yeah, man. Uh, happy to have you on. So, you know, we get a lot of guests on this podcast and uh, my wife actually pointed you out. You have a really cool Instagram. Uh, some cool stuff. I really like the like break burn intros, man. They're uh, they're pretty cool. So <laughs> before we get started, let's uh, let's everyone a little bit about your background and you are how you got into strength training for cyclists and how that how that happened for you. Yeah, so uh, I'm all strength training for cyclists, 100% online at this point, but I grew up downhill racing, all things gravity, mountain bikes, dual slalom, four cross, and eventually transitioned into enduro. Uh, but there was a gap in between where I stopped pursuing downhill racing, even though it was honestly something I was that was pretty realistic for me to attain. I, I was riding for the Yeti national team at that point, and was racing in the pro category occasionally getting results but not quite beating the real pros to have this like full offer you know and so i was just right on the cusp there and i had a big injury a couple little setbacks and at the same time i was introduced to all these people in the uh, training industry really through yeti we had uh, nutritionists on staff we had coaches and as i was rehabbing from an acl I started getting more and more into that side of it. So I ended up stepping away from downhill racing and just became a personal trainer. And this was totally just in the general health and wellness space. I was working at a typical commercial gym, training anybody and everybody and learning all things health and wellness and just general strength conditioning. So pursued that and then felt like I had a ton of unfinished business with mountain biking. So dove back into enduro for a couple of years and at that time, I was able to jump back in at a high level because I had all the tech skills still from downhill. Like I I'd, I'd kept up riding my bike a little bit. And so, you know, I'm riding with some of the top pros in the nation and they know I'm a trainer. So they start talking to me about strength training. And yeah. at the time I was full-time personal training. I actually had my own studio at this point and all my own business. And so I was like, man, I should do a program for these guys. And so I came out with the off-season enduro program, which is currently on my website and it was the first online program I launched before I turned it into a subscription platform. And basically one thing led to another. Now I'm full-time online and I actually have really moved toward the endurance disciplines. Um, I'm now yep. focused mostly on road and gravel uh, and XC mountain bikes. And gravity still has a major place in my heart, but uh, I've really aligned <laughs> with all the training side of like the endurance categories. And it's what I ride mostly now anyway. So uh, it's been a really cool transition. Cool, man. And one of the things that I liked about what you're doing is um, we've had strength people on the podcast before, so it's not like strength is new, but you do things, a lot of kettlebells, you've got TRX, you've got some unique ways of looking at things. And with your background, uh, specifically, like you say, with enduro and stuff like that, you look at the bike a little bit differently. So we want to have you on 
Uh, like I said, I learned about you on Instagram. So how did the whole Instagram thing take off for you? How did you get such a such a popular following on Instagram? Honestly, just free marketing. I started using <laughs> Facebook before Instagram. And then when Instagram really solidified itself, it's kind of the next platform after Facebook. I yep. wanted to go all in on it. And so I was just really focused on trying to build that audience. And to be honest, my page took off when Reels started really taking off. And it yep. to be honest, it wasn't because I was just good at that format. It's because I studied it and I was like, I have to learn how to use this because this is an opportunity for me to propel my business forward. Like I don't have a marketing budget. And so yep. this is an opportunity for me there. And it also was a realistic format because YouTube is so difficult. I already had the podcast rolling. And so it just felt like a good fit. So I just thought, how the heck could I make cycling content that supports the business? And to be honest, I think the thing that made me successful was for one, I was willing to do kind of corny intros or like, yeah. I'm not afraid to just be a little goofy. And I've had to reel that in at times because I don't want to be like, uh, yeah, I want people to be able to take me seriously, but I also understand yeah. the platform a little bit. So I, you know, I wasn't afraid of looking goofy or whatever, which I honestly think helped. You got to take those risks, but I looked to the general fitness industry and how they were being successful on Instagram. And I just emulated that. And there's very yeah. few people still in the cycling industry that look toward these outside influences that are a way bigger market and yeah. take them into their own, I guess, audience. So that's kind of yeah. what I did. And I just noticed that I could have an opportunity to point people back to strength training to give them the solution they're looking for, which uh, for me, it's perfect because I really believe in my product. And I know that a lot of times strength training off the bike is a solution for people. So if I can give them content that supports all those things, it's a win-win. And, and thankfully, uh, some of it caught the algorithm. I kept paying attention to analytics and I just kept hammering the same thing over and over again. And yep. it's grown over time. Cool, man. I love it that you've done a very good job with Instagram. It's uh, Thank you. You're right. You've, you've kind of nailed the algorithm. So we've had this question asked before when we have strength people on, but what is your take on why... Um, is it so important for a cyclist to include strength training when it comes to wanting to improve their speed and performance? Why is the strength training so important? What does it contribute to really for the cyclist? I think it's giving yourself this opportunity to be successful long-term. You have the yeah. very short-term gains of more force production, for instance, by making stronger muscles with strength training. That's like the obvious yeah. benefit. And with that can come speed, we can come power, and overall that acceleration to go faster in the moment. But we also know that there's so many things that the bike can lead to in a negative way. If you're just hammering it over and over and over again, like these uh, overuse injuries, you can start building yep. muscle compensations because you're in a very fixed position. And some people have heard this over and over again, but at the same time, it needs to be drilled in that there's just stuff you can do off the bike that you cannot accomplish on the bike. Like doing a low cadence workout on the bike doesn't actually like it's not a good option opposed to just strength training off the bike because not because you're not getting stronger while you do it there are some arguments about that we can make but it's mostly like the muscle groups like you can't right. adequately work your hamstrings and core on the bike that the way that they need to be worked and so over time, you'll feel it through compensations when your low back starts firing, when your knees are giving you pain. Like th typically these are due to 
length tension relationships, your muscles not firing the way that they should be and supporting each other. And again, it's like the only solution is to do stuff off of the bike. And so that's why it's so important. It's like not only your short-term power and speed, but it's your longevity in the sport. And not only that, but how much you're enjoying your rides in the moment as well. Because when you have yeah. pain on a ride, it sucks. I don't care yeah. how good your performance is that day. If it was painful, it's not going to be as enjoyable as it should have been. And, and most of us, I'd say, I'm sure 90 plus percent of your podcasts are people who also ride just for fun. And it is yeah. our form of uh, joy, you know? So it's like, yeah. I, don't wanna, I want people to experience that as much as possible. And that's, that's one of the big benefits of it. You know, I, I like what you're saying. You know, I've had a lot of people talk about like strength and performance and obviously, you know, look like what's per kilogram and your ability to output and stuff like that in duration. But what you're saying is you're basically taking muscle groups and you're balancing the stuff that's not getting work to make the stuff, to make the body as a whole balance. And I really like that approach to it. Um, makes a lot of yeah. sense. When you start working with an athlete or you're putting together a training program, like you have a bunch of them on your site. How do you pick if you're going to use like TRX or kettlebells or like whatever method you use? Can you talk about the methods you use and how you pick specifically which ones you're going to use for the programs you make? Totally. So I started building programs with the idea that I would only put out programs that would use an entire gym essentially because coming from the, the gym space in my head, I'm like, you need the tools for the job. I only want to put out the best quality work and we need all the equipment to do that and i think there's a lot of truth there but what i've realized working with the general population and but also specifically cyclists who are putting in so much time on the bike they don't want to go to a gym and a lot of times you have to meet people where they are with the equipment that they have and so the thing that was most important for me was to figure out what's a proper amount of volume for a cyclist to do what's the proportion of of core workouts versus leg versus upper body and total body workouts. You know, should we do, what, what is the style of workout? Should it be focused like a, on getting your heart rate up, like a hit interval? Should it be more yoga focused? Like what is all, all the things that we need to do? Should we power lift? Should we do a CrossFit format? So once I felt confident about that style of training, I wanted to also build programs that would fit people's equipment access. So if someone comes to me and says they only have a TRX or they only have dumbbells or they only have a single kettlebell, what can I do for the next three months? And a lot of my programs came about that way. Uh, but with that being said, there are changes in format, specifically volume, depending on a rider's discipline. So if you're a road cyclist riding more than 13 hours a week, you should probably be doing a lower volume strength program than someone who rides five hours a week that also yeah. just really wants to put on a little upper body mass because, you know, like they're not as competitive with cycling and they want to look a little better at the beach. Maybe they're more focused on body <laughs> composition. You know, these athletes should be doing different programs. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's these boundaries that you have to keep it within for it to still improve their cycling performance the way that they want. So yeah. It was more about building that format and understanding what works over time through all the experience of these different athletes and, and personally doing it myself. You know, like I, I do every single thing I tell my audience to do. I like, I would never ask someone to try a certain program or workout or ride or diet or anything like that, that I'm not willing to do myself. So I also have that personal experience and implement it. And so, uh, that's, that's basically how the programs are created. Okay, cool. So if you got somebody new to cycling and they're looking for some basic strength training stuff, what, what are things that you would recommend that they do just to get themselves 
sort of ready and being able to stay on the bike? I'd recommend really accepting the fact that you should be doing total body workouts and not yeah. just trying to hammer your legs in the gym. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that cyclists make. And it's it's weird because you think, oh, the obvious answer is to do all these leg workouts because I want stronger legs. But the reality is you have to be able to recover. And if you're going to go do these crazy split routines where you do leg press and Bulgarian split squats and a thousand walking lunges because that's what you saw the bodybuilder do, then you're just not going to be able to perform on the bike for the next couple of days. Like it's just too much volume. So I would say accept the idea that you're going to do total body exercises. So a pretty even split between legs, core, and upper body. And you also want to commit to training at least two days per week. And so that is going to allow you to get this, the, the gains that you're looking for and actually make progress. And this is all based off of super compensation. Are you familiar with that, the super compensation curve for recovery? No, explain it. So if I were to draw, let's just say we had a graph and I could try and do the best visual possible through the, through the audio yeah. here. But you can, if you were to have a graph and the x-axis is seven days, it's a one-week block. And so you draw a straight line and we go to the first day and you do a strength training session that day. Well, your, oh, excuse me, the y-axis is your performance. Now, yeah. as soon as you do your strength session or whatever type of workout you're going to do, your perform your line is going to drop because you're at a weakened state. You know, you're beat down from your yep. session. You need to recover. Now, the super compensation curve after the next two or three days is that that line should come back up and it should surpass the initial level of performance because you gave yourself a little progressive overload. You adapted to the training stimulus and now you are more fit than you were before that training session. So okay. it, this curves and kind of arcs out around the three-day mark. And that's when you want to hit your next strength training session is on that so you can mm. stair step and make progress. If you wait a full week between sessions, which a lot of cyclists do, they'll strength train once a week, that curve comes back down to the initial level of performance and you kind of restart every week. So that is really maintenance. But even then, what I found out is, in my opinion, I don't even think it's really enough for maintenance because you miss one week and now you're behind the curve or you go a full week without activating your hamstrings and then your power's off on your bike and you don't feel as good. So I, I lump activation exercises into the same, same category as strength training, but the super compensation curve is what I base the two sessions per week off of. And it's really about how you recover and progress. And so that's how that came to be. Plus then you look at the comfort on the bike being as efficient as possible with the muscle mass that you have. You have to train your total body because you use your total body on the bike. <laughs> you, you can't yeah. tell me you don't do a sprint without ripping on the handlebars. And if you don't have a stable core that can transfer that power, you're not going to utilize it as well. So that's where the total body came in. And also just knowing about the body from a general health and well, wellness standpoint, if you don't, let's just say, do horizontal push and pull motions, then, and you're just doing push it, pushing, 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 that's when you start developing muscles on one side of your body that are a lot stronger than the other side and you create compensation. Yeah. So it's all about literally keeping your joints healthy. It's like, why do you need to do overhead press and overhead pull? It's to keep your shoulders healthy. Why do you need to do core and hip dominant and, and knee dominant? And those are the seven effective movements I follow. And it's all, it's not because you're just trying to add volume to add volume and for this random whatever formula, it's yeah. literally to keep yourself as balanced as possible from a, 
from just a human standpoint. And that will translate back to more efficiency on the bike and actually less pain over time. Um, so that is like the format that I would commit to. And what's cool is for someone starting out is you could do that with a foam roller at home. And there are movements that are more difficult. Like it's very hard to get a, a vertical pulling motion without any equipment yeah. because you think, oh, I need a pull-up bar or I need at least some bands and an anchor point to where I can lay. You know, training your back can be very difficult without equipment, but there are ways to do it. And that, those are the programs I'm really proud of because I have to get so creative when I'm like, oh, someone only does have a foam roller. How are they going to make their back stronger? <laughs> and how are they not going <laughs> to yeah. just do push-ups constantly? And so you can, you can do that. Um, but I would just say commit to two days a week, total body training and, uh, work your, or, and, and I guess just, you know, try and get, at least give yourself 30 minutes for a session. That'd be like the bare yeah. minimum, maybe an hour a week. Um, so then movements, if you think about how do you stay balanced, you really want one of each of the seven effective movements. And I know this is a lot of information to take on, but, uh, they're laid out in all of my programs. If you want to yeah, go yeah. And check them out, a little, uh, shameless plug there, but <laughs> basically you want a knee dominant movement, like a, a, a lunge or a step up. You want a hip dominant movement, like a squat or a deadlift. You need some type of core exercise. So this could be a plank or side plank. This could be uh, cable or band variations, like a pal off press, something where it's anti-rotational. So you're fighting force from pulling you to one side or another. Those are all really great for core. And then you want a horizontal push, like a push up, a horizontal pull, like a row, a, a vertical press like a shoulder press and then a vertical pull like a pull up or a lap pull down or something like that yeah. so if you could do one of each of those movements at each week and, and split those up between your two sessions you're going to be in a really good place good shape good shape yeah. does anything change for like a like a pro cyclist or somebody that's like an experienced cyclist or is it yeah. all the same basics well it's the basic movement format and the basic yep. frequency so how many sessions per week but oftentimes, the more elite a cyclist gets, like let's just say the more elite road or gravel, um, mountain bike, we can add a little more strength volume just because of the nature of the sport. But typically, the, those elite athletes are going to do like the bare minimum volume um, in season. And they'll ramp it up in the off season, or they should. But the athletes that train year round, which is something I'm really trying to promote for people because of the benefits, even if you bring it down to like an activation standpoint, they're just going to want to have less intensity through their strength training sessions. So they can go through all the same motions. They could even have somewhat similar volume, but if they keep it light, they're going to stay activated and feel good all year. Um, yeah. But it isn't interesting because sometimes you can have a, someone who's very untrained and new to strength training and cycling in general, or you can have literally, I don't know, Richard Carapaz or somebody like the most elite yeah. experienced athlete you could think of doing the same program because he needs such a little stimulus because he can't just overdo it. And this person is just getting started. So I think that's one thing that's very interesting about programming. And it's a challenge for me because I'm trying to automate my systems online and yeah, yeah. to give a proper program recommendation is difficult because of those circumstances. Um, oftentimes I find it's the person in the middle that can handle the most volume. You know, it's the, it's, it's kind of the majority of, of us cyclists. And like, let's just say, for example, you ride trailer enduro, um, or you even do ride road, but you ride like two to three days a week, maybe less than six hours total. You, you could probably handle three gym sessions a week. And maybe you are the person that's like, Hey, I just want to shed some body fat, you know, cap out my delts a little bit, just look a little bit 
you know, uh, more muscular. Beach ready. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're the person, you're like, okay, cool. Two total body sessions. Let's add a more upper body focus session. And you could probably handle that volume. So it, it's really interesting that your cycling experience doesn't really have anything to do with your strength training experience. It's more so how much time you spend on the bike. Yeah. Uh, that affects it's Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I get that. I mean, what what do you do if you have a like a strength athlete, somebody that's like a bodybuilder that's coming in and wants to transition to a cyclist? How do you get them ready for the bike? I mean, obviously there's a lot of mass there. So, what do you do with somebody like that? So, the first thing I got to just let everybody know here is I freaking love bodybuilding. I love CrossFit, powerlifting. I follow the sports loosely, uh, but as far as respect for those sports goes, I, I love it. Uh, yeah. The truth is they're just not a great fit for supporting what you're doing on the bike. Um, so, and that's why I don't train that way. But I will say when I get a person who's like, hey, listen, I really do still care about aesthetics. I want a split routine. I want to train quite a bit, uh, but I also want to improve my cycling. I think the biggest thing that I try and help them with is the mindset of knowing that they may not get stronger for a while if they're going to focus more time and energy into their riding because it's going to take energy away from their strength workouts. It's Cycling is kind of catabolic by nature, so it's unlikely that someone who maybe has a lot of experience as a bodybuilder and years and years of that would start adding all this volume of riding to their schedule and not lose a little bit of muscle. And those are very difficult things for people to wrap their heads around uh, when they're in that position because they've worked hard for all these gains. So I think I would just try and get them mentally prepared for those transitions and understand why they're doing what they're doing. Um, Because to tell someone to ride more isn't that difficult. They just have to know it's going to take away from something else. Like, and, 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 And you have to prepare them for that. Yeah. What do you say about people, cyclists? I mean, I hear all the time people talking about their watts per kilogram, right? So you've got kind of this this push and pull thing going on where people are like, well, I got to get my weight down. It's like old jockeys mm-hmm. back in the day when they rode horses. They had to make sure they made weight, right? So it's like if you are if you have too much weight off, then you know your issue is that you can't really perform on the bike because you don't have enough muscle. So what is that balance? How do you talk work with people that are worried about bulking up too much? when they're looking at strength and how do you like to spell that rumor that bulking up to some extent is not a good thing? Mm. It's definitely one of the biggest concerns I get from more elite experienced cyclists who are already pretty lean. Like they are already looking at their weight more and they don't want to add more muscle. But I think the truth is that you can do, you can do a lot. You, you can add a lot of strength without adding muscle mass. First of all, you can you can build stronger muscle connections, and when you build more efficiency through your body. So let's just say someone who's an elite cyclist, they have hamstrings, like they have they have muscle back there, but maybe it's not being activated and used the way that it should. And sometimes just some activation can increase their watts per kilo without increasing any actual like. Yeah. like strength itself or or adding muscle mass mass that's yeah. that's very realistic in fact i've had uh crit racers reach out after their first foam rolling session that was targeted on what they needed and they they hit like a three second power pr or something like that and it was literally oh, wow. just because they they had the, such tight hamstrings and they unlocked them a little bit and they were able to freely move their legs faster and more because think about it this way if you have tightness in your body if you have these resisting forces it's slowing you down. Like yeah. some people just need to free up their body to allow that power to come out. 
And so I think for the person who's concerned about adding weight, I think that's the the angle that they need to look at it from. And they need to also understand that it's a lot harder to put on muscle than most people think. I mean, if you, yeah, <laughs> if especially guys that are easy, built like cyclists. <laughs> yeah. And guys that ride as much as they do, you know, cause if you intentionally try to put on muscle for one, you would probably, you probably should be doing at least three, four days a week in the gym. It probably should be split routine. Your cardio is going to be like walking on a treadmill for 30 minutes. It's a completely different protocol diet. It is, is a completely different lifestyle if you're really focused on that. So, um, I, I would just, I always just tell, try and show people how I train and how I look, to be honest, because I'm not a big dude. You know, I'm 5'9", I'm 155 pounds, and I, I focus on keeping my body fat as low as I can within reason. Uh, but even yeah. with that being said, it's like there's a point where, you know, you can track your food all day long, but can I maintain 7% body fat? I've never been able to. And yeah. so, like, I'm still trying to find that balance, and, and it, I would say, improves a little bit um, as my lifestyle changes year on year in and year out. Um, but I would also say that the, the losing weight thing and the Watts per kilo, it it really depends on where you are. So we have that person you just talked about, but there, there, I'll just be honest. There are some people that should focus on losing weight. You know, if you have, yeah, it's like, it's like going for the low hanging fruit. You know, there are a lot of guys I know that have an extra 30 pounds on them that are ridiculously strong and they'll get in front of you on a flat section of road and they'll pull and I'll be in their draft doing 350 watts. And I'm like, this guy's doing like 500 watts. Per- <laughs> I don't even know how long pulling this whole group right now on our race ride or whatever we're doing. And they're so strong, but like that person really probably should focus on losing weight. And even if their FTP dropped a little bit just from power output, excuse me, not their FTP, but their, uh, yeah, their FTP, their dropped, their watt per kilo gain would be so much higher. Which, and they probably just yeah. feel better. And, and this is the funny thing, you know, the calorie deficit right now gets so demonized in the industry because there's this huge push on people eating more. And it is true in a lot of senses. I think the majority of cyclists should be eating more on the bike, but a lot of times they should be eating less off the bike or different types Mm -hmm. of foods off the bike. And it's okay to say that. And also a lot of people feel better when they're in a calorie deficit, when they go from eating a bunch of crap. And yeah. even though they're in a calorie deficit and you're like, oh, you're, you know, your glycogen stores aren't completely full. You could bonk and this and that. If, if you're feeling more than you were on the bike, you'll probably still feel better, especially if you're taking in liquids early, you're not going to bonk. But at the same time, your, your body's going to be running better. You'll be less inflamed. You'll probably be sleeping better because you're not packing mm-hmm. food or alcohol or, you know, whatever in your gut before you go to bed. And like, there's, I, I could go on about this, but I think that the conversation around losing weight needs to change. And I think anyone who's really concerned about their riding performance and wants to lose body fat, you you have to track your food because yeah, definitely you it's, it's someone's like, Oh, it's so much work. I'm not a robot. I can't live like that. Well, you, we all have to do things temporarily to make gains in our life. Like you temporarily yeah. do things. I could point to anything like going to school or having kids and babies. Could you imagine being in the young baby phase for, the rest of your life when you decide to have kids? No. no, but you do it because you know you're going to get through it in six months or a year, two years, whatever. So yeah. it's this short-term thing that you can do to make the progress you want and recalibrate what your baseline is. Like it's, yeah, it, you have to make these pushes. And if you're concerned about energy balance, I don't know how else to, you're going to know for sure you're getting enough food unless you track because you can walk that fine line of energy balance so well and be like, oh, I'm in a 300 calorie deficit today or a ballpark close enough. 
And if I just fuel a little bit extra before my ride tomorrow, I'm going to be fine. Um, yeah. So sorry, I just totally like, no, I think I just vented on you a little bit, but, <laughs> but that, that is uh, it, all my thoughts on like Watts per kilo, you know, it, it depends yeah, on the totally. person, you know? Yeah, totally. No, I get it. And like I say, I, I'm a hundred percent with you on the, um, you know, managing food and the way you treat your body is so important, right? I mean, you don't want to be in a, de- people, like you said, the idea of a deficit. I mean, I recently started intermittent fasting probably, probably three months ago or whatever. And I heard all these arguments for it and reasons against it. And I've recently heard one that I really, really liked an argument for it. And I decided to try it. And it is like, it's like the best thing I've done in a long time. Like it's really? amazing. I mean, I love it. I love it. Um, we'll talk about some more nutrition stuff here in a second. I actually want to dig more into that with you. Yeah. Um, before we jump there, I want to ask you some questions about if you've got somebody that's like injured or uh, they have some pain and you're working with somebody, are you still going through the same movements? Are you making modifications? What are you doing to get somebody through that pain or injury? Would this be like a broken collarbone injury or like IT band syndrome, something more acute or something? I I guess both. I mean, like you said yourself, you know, you came back from like an ACL issue, right? So that's, that's one. Um, Another one could be like IT band or it could be like, you know, like a, I don't know, uh, like a soleus issue or just something, Mm. you know, that's, that's a more overuse and something that's more chronic. So typically my protocol would be to start the person on a total body strength program, let's just say if it's IT band syndrome, and then to add specific mobility work and activation yeah. work to help correct that IT band issue. So for example, let's just say you reached out to me and you said, hey, I've got dumbbells, I've got a bench. Um, also, when I ride, my IT band flares up a little bit. Um, I would probably follow up and say, do the dumbbell program, this two days total body strength training, and add the IT band uh, rehab routine one day per week. And because I include mobility in all of my strength workouts, which is, I'm I'm happy I had a chance to bring up actually, oftentimes people just need to do something. Like a lot of people need to go from zero to one and that could be enough to correct some issue that they have. So taking a general approach to start can be good. Like for instance, I could even say, hey, just do this total body foam rolling routine and Let's see if in the process of that, it's enough to actually correct that specific thing. And if not, we can focus more in on it. Um, but I think if someone can, you know, get a warm up in, feel comfortable doing their squats and lunges with that issue going on, and then take extra time to address it after the fact, you can still get the progress you're looking for while actually like progress you're looking for from strength and conditioning while you make the progress with that injury. Uh, and there's been a lot, a lot of times with those chronic injuries where I'm like, okay, do this stretch and this activation before your strength workout uh, mm-hmm. for your low back, for example, and then you can have a more productive strength workout and actually make progress on everything. So I think continuing to move through the injury as much as you can is ideal and really like really trying to, to listen to your body. Again, this is like one of those uh, total cliche things to say as a trainer, but it's true. It's like, there's days where, you know, I'll have an IT band flare up or I'll, I'll, my wrist will be kind of swollen and I can't do a, a regular push up or plank. And so I'll make the modification necessary to get through the session, even if it means skipping one exercise or completely changing it. And I try and work with people the best I can on that. Um, I have a high volume of people on the website and I go back and forth through email. But when someone hits me up and says, hey, I can't shoulder press because my uh, I have an impingement going on, we, we just switch it up. 
Um, so I would just say okay. keep moving as much as you can. And then even if you are someone with a broken collarbone, it's it's funny you bring this up because I've had two people in the last week reach out to me with uh, one had a broken wrist, one had a broken collarbone. And they said, hey, I really want to keep moving. Do you have leg workouts I can do? So I started writing a leg only program <laughs> for yeah. injury. So again, I would never recommend leg only routine as a split. But if you are injured upper body, you can't ride. Well, there's a lot of really good exercises we could do that don't yeah. require you to grab any weight that will still keep your hamstrings strong and your legs a little stronger in the short term while you recover. So I, I just recommend keeping it moving and doing as much as you can, honestly, without without adding to the injury, of course. Yeah, which makes a, makes a ton of sense. And I get that. I, I mean, I've had issues. I've done a lot of strength training over the years from a, I use calisthenics a lot, use a lot of body, body weight stuff. So a lot yeah. of hand balancing I've, I've done. Um, and I've had issues where I've had wrist stuff. And it's like, how do you make modifications to keep yourself moving during that time? Mm. You know, it's like, and I get it 100%. Um, let's jump back into nutrition and stuff like that. First, I want to ask you, is there any sort of dietary thing that you follow? Are you like a keto guy, a vegan guy? Or what's your, what's your general sense? We've had so many people on the podcast that have kind of gone down sort of every rabbit hole you can imagine. What's, what's your stance on that? I'm not really a fan of excluding food groups from, from your diet unless you have a legitimate allergy from it. Yeah. Uh, because I think, I think variety is the spice of life. No pun intended with the thing. But I think the more variety, the the higher the odds are that you're going to be getting the nutrition that you need. And I think when mm -hmm. it comes to putting boundaries on food, the biggest thing I do is recommend food tracking and understanding the actual energy balance and some of the micronutrients that you're getting from the food. So for you to understand what types of food give you what type of energy being carbs, fat, or protein, I think is really important. And then to see the true value of those foods across a wide variety is how you have more freedom to eat and make better decisions long-term. And I think that just, I, I, I think you have to look at why people do those diets to begin with. And even intermittent fasting for, uh, you know, a lot of people, it's like, why does it work for people to lose weight? Are there all these benefits for cellular regeneration and benefits for your general health and well-being? Well, I honestly don't know a ton about that. You probably know more than I do uh, since mm. you've been doing it. But why do people lose body fat mostly from intermittent fasting? Oh, it's because they have a restricted time window where they can shove food in their face and get calories. And typically they are in a calorie deficit. And so that is like kind of like you go back to, oh, why does keto work? Oh, because you can't eat chips all night anymore. <laughs> why does vegan, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why does the vegan diet work? Oh, it's because you don't have all meat pep or all meat pizza or burgers anymore. It's like, could you add some lean cuts of protein to that beautiful vegan whatever meal that you have? Mm -hmm. And you'd probably be just as effective for weight loss and your health and maybe even more beneficial, probably. But it's like it completely yep. changes the way people eat. And for a lot of times, people need these rigid boundaries to get them to stop doing the thing that is being most detrimental to their diet. Um, yeah. Even for myself, you know, there's been times like even through COVID, you know, I got really comfortable having two old fashions every night. And then after it, I'm going to have like a little toffee chocolate. And then pretty soon I'm like <laughs> feeling horrible. You know, my weight's up six pounds and I'm like, oh my gosh, if I don't have this strict boundary of I'm not drinking alcohol for this amount of time, I don't think I have enough willpower to like, to be on the slippery slope of like, eh, maybe I'll have it tonight. Maybe I won't. I just need, I need some hard boundaries for a while. And I think that's why a lot of those diets can work for people. Uh, so 
so those are that's a long-winded answer those are my thoughts i think i think the more variety the better well you preach to the choir man i mean i've i met my wife uh about i think just over seven years ago now and so what's really interesting when i met her she was just really starting to realize that she had celiac disease and so i'd always eaten very healthy um but I started helping her through that process. And so we started like cutting things out. She's a certified health coach now. So she does a lot of that. Um, and one thing that I've learned is it's like every once in a while, I'll go through like what, what our diet, my diet. And I like, I say, what is the worst thing that I eat? And I'll say, okay, well, I'm going to cut that out. Right. And so if I would have made all this changes like day one that it, with the way that I eat now, there's no way I could have sustained it. Right. I, I just couldn't have done it because it was, it's so drastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but now like all these small changes, I realize like it's possible to maintain what I do. And I'll say that the, the, all the arguments that I've always had about intermittent fasting were always like, well, it makes you leaner. It does all these sorts of things. And for me, it's like, I've always been pretty lean. I've never really cared about that, but I recently, um, started listening to a guy, uh, his name's uh, Dr. David Sinclair. He's a longevity expert out of uh, Harvard, Harvard, and they've done some really amazing stuff. They're like showing reversing aging in mice and they're showing like killing cancer um through certain things and one of the main protocols that he actually recommends is intermittent fasting and talks about how it basically kills and prevents certain types of cancer and can help from a longevity perspective so i started it for that reason which is fascinating and the other benefits that i've noticed from it i think are really really cool so anyway um that's why i'm a like a big intermittent fasting fan now but uh, i totally get it if you're doing it simply because you know you think that intermittent fasting is going to be the answer but you cut out like all these things that you don't do like i noticed like i was always a guy who would eat i've always had like a very high metabolism i eat all the time i'm i always <laughs> say i'm like if people say you're hungry i'm like yeah always i'm always hungry <laughs> um, but what i do find is like i still eat probably the same amount it's more focused food and i just I'm like i'm not snacking at like four o'clock in the morning when i wake up and i'm hungry i just prevent myself from that so it, it makes a difference yeah, sure. it's funny you bring up the um, celiac disease because my wife also has celiac disease. Oh, really? And was, yeah. And so that's what I mean. Like if, if you have an allergy, I totally understand that, you know, there are foods that don't work for certain people. Um, but then I also look at, you look at the whole world and you're like, okay, there are healthy people living well past 100 with vitality on completely different diets. Uh-huh. And with with different, somewhat different lifestyles. Um, it's funny, random note, but I just watched that Blue Zone show on Netflix. Have you seen? That? Oh, it's on my list, man. I haven't seen it yet, but it is definitely Dude, on the list. It was cool. That was like the first Netflix series I've watched in in months, and uh, I loved it. It was super uplifting, and there are these like uh, definitely common denominators between these cultures, mm-hmm. but. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that you have to again listen to your body, and if you know your really reacting poorly to something or you know like oh i just need to put some barriers on when i'm going to eat so i don't wake up at 4 a.m and slam three bowls of cereal then you know that's not calling you out specifically but that's probably what i would do so so yeah i think it's it's a good idea to understand yourself that way and i know like even right now i have a way better relationship with uh with alcohol with dessert i kind of grew up i grew up on like reese's puffs and pop tarts i I kid Mm -hmm. you not so uh for one, I think it's actually helped my cycling because I have a really rock solid gut. But on another, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I've done other things over the years too, where for instance, when I became a personal trainer, I was convinced that milk was unhealthy now. And so I didn't drink milk for a year and I just started drinking almond milk. Well, 
by the time it came around, be like, okay, you know, the milk's actually got some good benefits. And I'm sure there's people listening right now to be like, oh my gosh, you know, like getting all whatever about humans being the only adults to drink milk or whatever you want to say. I was like, I'm going to try drinking milk again. But dude, I couldn't. It's like I lost the uh-huh. enzyme in my stomach to allow me to uh, absorb it. And the lactose started messing me up. And it sucks, man, because I'm like, I want a milkshake from In-N-Out so bad. And I can't do it anymore. I can't have normal ice cream. I can't have cottage cheese. Like it kind of, it, it sucks. And so I remember thinking, I was like, why did I even do that? And uh, anyway, it's kind of a random side story, but I have had to listen to my body. And it's at the point now where I don't even eat things with milk chocolate in them on rides. Like if you have like a bar that has like chocolate chips, yeah. I won't touch it. Um, I can do things with cocoa powder or cocoa in it that doesn't have any lactose, but um, I've had to listen to myself and be like, dang, this is a boundary that I have. And, uh, I don't know, maybe it's keeping me leaner, but it, it does kind of suck. <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, I, I don't eat dairy either. My wife can't tolerate dairy either. Mm. And it's just kind of thing that I don't do, but every once in a while I do eat dairy. And fortunately for me, like it doesn't really bother me. I mean, like maybe like a very small amount, but it's one of those things. Like if I had never stopped dairy, I'm not sure I would really realize the difference. I've always found that like, Mm. as you take things out of your diet, like we have pretty much like a strictly free, like gluten-free home. Um, And like, so I don't really consume gluten. If I'm out somewhere and sometimes I get it, like I can notice like a small difference, but I wouldn't say like long-term, I would, I don't think it would, I would notice it, but, uh, but still all these improvements, I I like them. I think they're, they're beneficial to in some regard with, with certain things. But like, I get it. I agree with you at the same time, like, like taking certain things away for like no reason. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily sure that makes a lot of sense. So I, I have mostly gluten-free home now too. And I, thankfully I like rice is probably my favorite carb, like white rice, yeah. sticky white rice, sushi rice is the best. Um, but there are some things that I've told my wife, I was like, listen, I, I can't do that one. Like pasta. <laughs> like I, I yeah. just can't figure out how to find a gluten-free pasta that's as good as regular pasta. And I'll I send you it, one, man. Really? Uh, okay. Cause I mean, I, I've had, yeah. I've had them all and some of them I'm like, are, are you, are you even able to call this some sort of pasta? Cause it's like, it's bad, yes. but there's one that I really like. Um, but still it doesn't quite compare to like traditional, like, oh, it's, oh, it's yeah. not the same. But it's it's decent. It's the best one I've tried. I'll send it to you for sure. Cool, cool. Um, Appreciate it. As far as let's jump back into nutrition for cyclists. Um, as far as nutrition for cyclists goes, are is there any way you're you talked about like fueling beef, you know, during the ride or whatever? Do you have any like specific protocol that you give people? Do you have like programs for nutrition as well? I think you do on your site, right? I don't have programs. I coach people through food tracking and I have protocols set up. So if someone says, Hey, I want to lose body fat. Uh, this is what you would do X, Y, and Z. And this is my process. And then when someone has a question that's more specific, I'd be happy to answer it with them. Uh, but I don't have any like actual like meal plans. Um, to to be honest, I don't know if I'm a huge believer in meal plans because of the rigidity and it doesn't really teach you how to choose your foods. It just teaches you to follow this. So mm-hmm. I really do my best to coach people through food tracking because I think it's what's most clear and what's most successful for cyclists. Uh, but I would say that the biggest thing to wrap your head around is that the nutrition you need to have on the bike to fuel your rides properly is vastly different from the nutrition you should have off the bike to be a healthy human. And yeah. so 
the the most clear thing I would say is that your on the bike calories should be mostly carbohydrates, and you're going to be intaking a wild amount of sugar, and it's good because that's the energy that you're burning most of the time while you're cycling, and so you're re- you're replenishing what you're burning in that moment, and it's a very quick uh, absorbing process and quick emptying process. So for you to go out and take in hundreds of grams of carbohydrates during a ride is vastly different from sitting on the couch, eating a Ben and Jerry's and taking in hundreds of grams of carbs that way mm-hmm. while you're not doing anything. And so food timing does have a lot to do with being successful with that balance. Uh, so for example, if you're a cyclist who is going to go out for a morning ride, like a lot of us do, you know, maybe you leave at 8 a.m. and you just have a little oatmeal and some coffee before you go. And then you immediately start fueling with uh, some liquid carbs on the bike. And let's just say you ride for three hours and let's say you take in a hundred or let's say you take in 200 grams of carbohydrates, pretty good fueling a little bit more would probably be ideal if it was higher intensity. So then you come back and if you were to track that, you would look at your calories and you'd be like, Oh my gosh, 90% of the calories I took today have been from carbohydrates. Well, I can't have my whole day look like that. So what do I do now? The ride's over, you fueled it. You still need to intake carbohydrates, but now it's time to backload the protein. It's time to start getting some fiber, some greens, some vegetables in. And based on the timing of your day, how you end the day is gonna look drastically different than when you started. So it's like by the time you get to that last meal, hopefully you're just topping off the bit of protein that you needed to intake to hit like your daily goal. And hopefully it's a lot more full of high fiber, high uh, micronutrient dense food opposed to just pure condensed calories through carbohydrate. And so that's kind of how to balance it throughout the day. Uh, Like, for example, dude, I just did this nine hour ride this weekend. I'm training for a 24 hour ride and I left at 630 in the morning. And by the time I got home at three, I had only eaten... 20 grams of protein for that entire day, but I, I took in 3000 calories or 3,200 calories or something like that. And I tracked all of it. And for me, that is like bonkers. You know, I usually have six egg whites plus an egg for breakfast minimum every single morning. But if I'm going to go out and ride, if I ate that, it's just going to sit in my gut and disrupt my digestion and it's going to pull in blood and, and I don't want it. So I drastically will change my diet based on when my ride is kind of throughout the day. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any, do you follow anything like uh, from a macro perspective? Are you doing like one gram of carbohydrates for one gram of protein or how do you balance like fat, protein, carbohydrates? I The first thing I tell people to to set in stone is for one, what is their, their calorie uh, limit for the day? So you have your basal metabolic rate, which is the amount of calories you burn at rest. And this is mm-hmm. like, baseline need for energy. Like if you woke up and just laid in bed all day and peed your pants and didn't do anything, you would burn this amount of calories. Yeah. And so that's your basal metabolic rate. And there's equations you can do. I have one on my website for members, um, but you can look it up online as well. You input, you know, just information about your, um, your age, your gender, height, all that stuff. And so it'll spit out a number. Typically you want to add calories because as soon as you get out of bed, walk around, brush your teeth, digest food, do all those things, you're burning calories. And depending on how active your job is, you need to give yourself extra calories or you're going to really be too deep in a deficit. 
And so you can multiply that number by by 0.1 to 0.3, depending on your activity level. And that's that'll get you mm. ballpark a lot closer to where you should actually be for your baseline. So for me, my baseline calories is around 2000 calories. And so once I have that set, I know that I'm going to shoot for like point, 0.8 to one gram per pound of body weight for protein is in my opinion, ideal. Now I'm going to tell you Disclaimer, this is higher than what uh, the, the the government will tell you or what uh, I'm trying mm-hmm. to, I'm totally slipping on the actual organization, but. The F- FDA, the food and drug. Th- yes, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. this is higher. They'll, they'll say like 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is like less than half of your yeah. uh, b- uh, pounds. Pounds. Grams per, per pound. One gram. So, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So thanks for bearing with me for everyone trying to get me to try to math right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it's like wildly low. And here's the thing. I, I just have to throw this out there because endurance athletes in particular are so hung up on eating a minimal amount of protein. Why? You don't do anything to the minimum. Okay. First off, and you're putting so much more stress on your body. Give yourself the, the protein your body needs to not only recover the muscle tissue, but protein does so much more than just, you know, repairs damaged muscle tissue. It is the most satiating macronutrient that you get. Well, some would argue fat, but protein is going to make you feel more full than anything. And for yeah. someone trying to lose weight, it's extremely beneficial. Uh, it increases your resting metabolic rate. It does so many good things for you. So I would highly recommend people to shoot for 0.8 to one gram per pound of body weight. And once you have that number, your carbs and your fat for a daily needs could be really up to you. Typically endurance athletes will eat on the higher carbohydrate side, but I have some people that actually prefer eating more fats. They want more olive oil. They want more avocado and nuts. And they feel better when they do that. And they're still good about fueling their carbohydrates on the bike. I think that's really kind of up to your own personal lifestyle and Mm -hmm. how you like to eat. Um, But typically it's around like, you know, 25% for protein. And then a lot of times people will have like 30, uh, uh, like, yeah, 30 ish percent for fats. Let's, Let's keep this actually a little bit easier on the math because this is a true ballpark. 25% protein. 25% 25% fat and 50% carb is a very average macro split. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. That, I, I was going to try and math again. It, it's <laughs> usually when I tell people to tweak it, it's like plus or minus 5% based off of that. Yeah. Cool. Love it. Um, yeah. When you look at uh, a cyclist throughout the year and you think about like base, build, peak, and then like performance, like periodization, are you doing anything different on the strength and nutrition side? In the off season, I think cyclists should definitely be more comfortable increasing the intensity and the load. And that's because you're likely in a base phase on the bike. And if you carry fatigue into your rides, it's not as detrimental as if you were actually trying to perform in an event or if you're trying to do some super high intensity efforts. And so it's, it really is a good time for you to get stronger and to prioritize more of your energy expenditure and more of your recovery toward the strength training. Uh, because it just won't interfere with your on the bike performance as much because you're kind of trying to chill a little bit more on the bike anyways, and you're just trying to plug miles. And so for you to ramp up your intensity of strength training, I think is a really good idea for you to focus on 
hypertrophy and maximum strength over maybe even muscular endurance is probably a good idea. Um, and that would basically mean that you're doing some lower rep ranges. Um, you know, sticking below 12 reps would probably be a good idea. Having a period of time where you drop down towards six reps is a good idea. But again, this is one of those weird things with cyclists where they're like, Hey, if I do a maximum strength rep range, which is five or below or six or below, then I can build a lot of strength without adding mass. And there's a ton of science to prove that. But what doesn't get talked about is the fatigue and how much it breaks down your body. When you do a heavy set of five deadlifts, dude, you're going to be, you're going to be feeling it. It is going to make your whole body very <laughs> stiff. And again, it's good to do periodically, but there are these, there are these, uh, really, uh, well-established coaches that will say you need to do a five by five routine all winter. And I'm like, they're going to be destroyed all winter. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. there's ways to get in those rep ranges, but you don't want to just pound it every week through November and December and January, maybe like that. Y you should have a little variety. So I would say feel comfortable going up to 12 reps. You're in the hypertrophy or technically the muscle building range. Um, Again, it's, you're probably not going to explode with muscle, so don't panic. Uh, and then as you get more toward the season, you can focus on some more power movements, but I think focusing on muscular endurance is a good idea as you get into the season at a lower intensity, because as your periodization on the bike changes, like let's say you have more anaerobic efforts on the bike, you also don't want to have significantly more anaerobic efforts in the gym too. Like there's a point where it's like you're doing too much of the same stimulus. So I think to be honest, the majority of the periodization should be on the bike and the gym should change throughout the year, but maybe not as drastically. Yeah. Okay. Makes total sense. Let's, uh, I'm going to ask you some just general questions, fun questions. Do you yeah. have any specific success stories that you have seen or work with people where they've come to you, you've incorporated some sort of strength nutrition stuff and you've just sort of seen them like explode. Oh yeah. I have the best one that just happened. Uh, his name's Daniel Benjamin dialed fan member reached out to me in October of last year. And if anyone wants to see a visual, uh, it's my latest blog post. It's, it's great. You asked me this question because uh, I just put this out, but if you go to the journal on dialedhealth.com, you can see the before and after photos. Basically in October of last year, this guy reached out to me and he was just curious about food tracking and adding some strength training. Very, yep. very typical question I would get about getting started, gave him the, the steps and he started following up and it was cool because every time he asked a question, it, I could tell that he actually did the thing I said beforehand. You know what I mean? Like people will, will ask and ask and ask and never really put things into practice and they kind of talk in circles. But every time he came back to me, he had a question where I was like, oh, he wouldn't even know to ask this unless he did that last thing. So he must be making progress. <laughs> yeah. So it was really cool. Like as a coach, it was very, very gratifying. Like you can tell when people are putting in the work or not, um, the more experienced you are. So he basically comes back with like the next question, the next question. And pretty soon... Uh, it's early this year and he's like, dude, I've lost 40 pounds. And I'm like, what? I'm like, no way. I was like, we gotta, we gotta talk about this more. Like, what's I'm looking at his pictures. I'm looking at this. Are you post, looking man. at it? Yeah. This is okay. pretty wild. So we just did a podcast together. If you guys want to go listen to it, but basically to speed this up for you guys, he implemented food tracking, had a three to 500 calorie deficit every single day, started strength training twice a week. And he lost since October of last year, all the way up until August of this year, 
he lost 60 pounds. And not only did he lose 60 pounds, but his FTP went from 315 to 340. So he, he's like at four and a half watts per kilo or something like yeah. that right now. And yeah, so it's saying he, right here from 3.4 to 4.5. It also yes. said the VO2 max jumped from 44 to 58. Mm-hmm. And his resting heart rate went from 60 beats to 45 beats. Yep. Wow. That, dude, that's one year. And if you listen to his story, he w- he's uh, in law enforcement. He was one of the most fit dudes as he went through the academy. And then over the years, just put on a little weight every year, uh, stopped training, stopped exercising. And so he had a scare on the bike. Um, his wife actually works in the industry and they ride a ton. He was still out. You know, I think there's a photo of him at 220 pounds riding at a BWR in Arizona earlier this year or 200 pounds at that point, but he got up to like 220. He thought he was having a heart attack one day watching his kid and his wife was out of town working. He linked up with a paramedic friend he knew. He's all hooked up to tubes. His kid's crying because he thinks his dad's dying. Crazy day where he just said, enough is enough. I'm turning this around. That's when he reached out to me in October. He did everything that I said and I I don't want to take credit for it, but it's his work, came, but the guy. It's his right? work, but he used my protocol, and it's the it is probably the best testimonial I've ever gotten. Because not only that, but at the end of August, he went to SBT Gravel, which was one of his main uh, goals, and he ended up last minute bumping up to the full distance of 140, and he finished like 13th in his age group of 30 to 39, which is super competitive. And wow. he had a killer race, and the dude's just the dude is rocking it. So yeah, it's an insane testimonial and. I actually just got follow-up from my first Dialed Health Shred winner, which is a contest I do every January for body fat loss for cyclists. And dude, he if you saw the it's been three and a half years now. And he went from I'm I can't remember the the weights off the top of my head, but I can see the before and after photos. And we're we did an initial before and after photo, but he has kept it going and now he is like a shredded (laughs) full-blown racer roadie taking my koms locally it's crazy it's like yeah i literally just got an email that said he took like four of my koms in one ride and i'm like you know what i was like i can't even be mad about that so shout out to you greg so there are there are other testimonials um of of this protocol and then i think back to though it's it's crazy because i've trained people who are like 350 pounds i've trained people who are super untrained uh, this was before I started specifically getting it, like merging the worlds of cycling and strength training. But like, it's also so rewarding to see someone do their first push up when they're in their mid forties or something. There's like a, it feels the same, but for specifically what I'm doing now, I think that Daniel Benjamin testimonial is, it's a good one, man. That's good. That's awesome. Yeah. Man. I love that one. I love it. Do you have any certain technology? You talk about food tracking. You talk about all these things. Obviously, you have your your own site. Do you use any like apps or tech from like a food tracking perspective that you like, or even from like a tracking workouts? Yeah, so I use MyFitnessPal, and okay. uh, I have no affiliation with them. I honestly, I just started using it years ago because it was the the one that I saw fitness influencers I followed use. Uh, yeah. and I didn't even really think anything of it. I was like, this is the app, but there are other ones. I think there's an app called lose it. There's an app. Uh, oh man, I'm trying to think there's quite a few, there's new weight loss, uh, companies like Noom. There's a lot of people 
mm-hmm. in the space, but I've always just used MyFitnessPal. I think it's simple. I think it has the biggest library of pre-tracked foods. Like you could scan almost any barcode and it's in there, or you can upload your own food if you need to. Like if you ever yeah. make your own recipe or something like that, and it's pretty dang easy to use. Um, as far as tech for my own business, I've built my own platform up to this point. And I say up to this point because like, you know, launching an app and um, going this route of this tech company is uh, it's 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 not what I thought it would be in a sense. So I think that in the future, I could definitely leverage other platforms and use help to give my members a better experience. But even for my members now, like I'm honest with them, you know, if you use the app this way, it's really good. If you try to use it another way, you're going to come across some problems. <laughs> yeah. And it's probably going to be like that for a little while. Uh, I will say, though, our website works extremely well. I'm very, very proud of it. Um, and we own and, and made all the tech for it. Cool, man. I love that. So let's yeah. talk about your site just a little bit. You've got – tell me what's on the site, what people can get if they come there. Um, plug yourself, man. Let's do it. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, yeah, dialhealth.com. It's all strength training for cyclists. I have – 14 programs on there uh, at this point. Some are up to four months long. I also have individual workouts, uh, kind of like the IT band routine, where it could be focused on mobility, could be focused on core or low back. Uh, so there's ways to customize your calendar and getting a subscription for $20 or less a month uh, gives you access to everything. And so mm. I'm basically on an at-need basis uh, and you can reach out to me when you need help. And that's it. Uh, you go and you find a program that meets you where you are with the equipment you want, with your writing discipline. There's like a program questionnaire you can fill out that goes to me. And uh, that's how you pretty much get started. And, and really my goal is to do everything we talked about earlier, which is how can I give someone the resources for them to stay consistent and, and get those results that you cannot get by just writing more? Cool. Now, we do ask this question uh, of every guest that comes on the podcast called a what point question. Uh, we basically say if they take the advice from the expert on the podcast and we start with a 300 watt FTP, uh, what do we get to? But it looks like, man, we just, we have the perfect case here. We got Benjamin, Daniel, Benjamin, Mm. he went from 315. So close to that 300 watt FTP and he jumped to 340 in a year. So we can easily say, you know, maybe he's a bit of an, uh, a unique case, but do you think a 25 watt bump coming in with no strength training experience, uh, following what you're saying is reasonable for a cyclist with no strength training experience. I'd feel comfortable saying that. Yeah. I don't know if I could say generally though, cause if you have strength training history already, <laughs> maybe not. I think what I would feel comfortable saying is that your economy and just overall efficiency efficiency on the bike is going to improve so drastically, not only from an FTP bump, but from your own comfort and from your body, literally just using more of your current available resources. Um, I also understand that you're going to be more prevented for injury. So your longevity is going to be higher, whether that's acute from a crash or like some pothole you didn't see that could have led to you twisting your ankle or your knee on the bike. Like there's so many weird things that could happen to actual impact um, you know, being a little bit more durable makes a lot, lot, a big difference. So it's very hard to quantify some of these things, which can be frustrating. But I know that even if someone maintained their FTP, their ride experience would be so much better that, um, they would, they would have to keep doing it like that. Yeah. I feel very confident saying that. 
Okay, cool. We'll go 15 to 20 watts. Let's do that. Sounds reasonable <laughs> to me. 15 <laughs> to 20 watts and, and less pain. Let's, let's add and less pain. It. All right, man. I'll go. throw that on the end. Less yeah. pain. Listen, man, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Awesome. Um, I love the sort of, we went off track there for a while, but I love the, I love the conversation. love how that happens on these shows. Um, again, man, appreciate you. Best of luck with everything you're doing and uh, ride safe out there. Back at you, John. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to Faster. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Leave a review or teach a friend what you learned today. For more great episodes on getting faster, subscribe to this podcast. While you're on your next ride, be kind to one another and ride safe. Thank you.